Another episode of No Challenges Remaining, episode 28. I am Ben Rothenberg, and joining me for, I guess, the 28th time is my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. Greetings. How are you doing? Yeah, things are good. Weather is lovely here in California, probably nicer than it is in the East Coast, so what do I have you to have about? You have little to complain about. I'm taking advantage of the weather, it being February here, to uh, drive up to New Hampshire, where I hear it's lovely this time of year, tomorrow, <laughs> so... I'll be doing that. Beachy, balmy. Beachy, balmy. I'll bring sunscreen, you know, and a shovel yeah. to dig myself out of the roads as I keep plowing along. <laughs> Probably more necessary. But yeah, but the women, but the uh, but the tennis keeps on rolling. I feel like February is always a surprisingly substantive month in tennis, even though we don't think of it as being one. I agree. I mean, I didn't read the full piece, but I I saw Matt Cronin had linked to a piece that he had written about the relevance of February and to not put too much stock into February. So I haven't read it yet, but there might be something to that. I mean, but uh, but the tennis, just from a pure enjoyment uh, perspective, has been really nice. Yeah. And it, and it usually is. You know, you get really good matchups and, yeah, kind of the, the also-rans get their, their day to shine. So, yeah, it's been good. So on this episode, we're going to talk about the week in tennis uh, where we had Resurgent Petra Kvitova winning Dubai and all the other results this week. We're also going to talk about Rebecca Marino's busy week and her decision to step away from tennis, ultimately. And then we're going to check in with our dear friend Yelena Yankovic as she soldiers on in Bogota. And uh, then we're going to take some questions and take a number and rant about some stuff. So you ready to rock, Courtney? Always ready to rock, Ben. Let's do it. There were six tournaments this week, if you count Memphis uh, men's and women separately. So it's a pretty busy, busy week on the Pro Tour. Probably the biggest tournament and the biggest story comes out of Dubai, where Petra Kvitova, after a rough 2013, wins the title there, after a pretty good showing in Doha against Serena as well. Courtney, what do you make of Petra's February so far? You know, it's amazing what one match or one performance can do. Yeah. You know, and I think that she was really... From what I had read from her comments after, you know, pushing Serena to three sets and playing the best match she's played in a really long time, like probably the best match she's played in over a year in Doha, yeah. hearing her sound so confident and encouraged was great. I mean, I think that she does definitely now, having seen her play two back-to-back weeks, she looks fitter than she did even in, in Melbourne. She has a new fitness coach, which I think is, is quite smart. And she played like really confidently. She didn't drop a set all week. She beat a bunch of top 10 players. She beat Wozniacki easily. Just dropped a set today in the final to Irani simply because Petra is Petra and nothing can go easily. Right. She has to get, you know, breadsticked by Irani um, <laughs> in a final. But I think it's great. I mean, I think that my position on Petra Kvitova being a relevant player on the WTA has been long documented. I think that it's important. I think that... If she kind of makes her way back into the top five, uh, ideally, quote unquote, ideally, I guess top four, because I think that to me at her best, she is in the top four behind the, the other three. I think that, that that changes the entire landscape of the WTA in a very meaningful way and make, you know, the latter half of the weeks, um, you know, even more interesting because the fact of the matter is Agnieszka Radwanska at, at number four is a solid number four. But when it comes to playing the other three, she's kind of 
kind of kind of no, Ferrer like in that way. Yeah, there's just there's just not nothing's like nothing's really going to happen there, and so you really only get to the extent the top four make the semifinals, like one maybe quality final semifinal. Uh, whereas if Petra's in there, I think it just really changes everything. So good on her. I, I I like that as much as like everyone has had to be very critical of her over the last year. I mean, she has shown quietly some signs of improvement, which was she was winless in North America until last year. Yeah. Finally notched, you know, some wins and, and a couple of titles uh, in New Haven and Montreal or yeah. Toronto, whichever Montreal. city that was. And then this year, I think she came in winless in the Middle East into Doha. So I think that might be right. I could be wrong. But but even just, you know, getting that title in a, in a hot and humid place, um, solid work from her. Definitely solid work from her. And it seems the fitness coach, I definitely agree, is big. And Petra, even when she was sort of falling out of touch, if you look at her results, actually, from last year, for the most part, they weren't terrible i mean she did make her slam results anyway semis in australia semis at the french quarters at wimbledon losing to serena and then fourth round of the us Open when she got absolutely blitzed she got bartoli but zoning bartoli <laughs> and that was just you know, that could happen to anybody anybody could get long lowered that way but buzz saw bartoli we call her buzz saw bartoli indeed <laughs> so yeah so i think petra even though this seems much improved, I feel like how bad she was wasn't the fall-off level that other people have had. She wasn't, you know, something in the way that Anna Ivanovich was something when she and her post-slam haze or anything like that. She wasn't going out losing to Julie Kwan or anything like that. It was, you know, staying within reach. And now that she's, you know, making that step to pull herself closer, she's really right there close again. So I think there's reasons to be encouraged. And I'm definitely interested to see what she does in Indian Wells and Miami where she has, like, no points to defend because of her bad results last year. So we'll see. It's going to be a uh, interesting season for Petra. And I think Clay is a decent service for her. And I wouldn't discount her at all to have, make a great run at the French. Yeah, no, she's she's a threat no matter where she plays. Yeah. And in any tournament she plays, she's a threat to win it all without dropping a set and practically bageling the entire field or losing in the first round with a double bagel. I mean, that's just the roller coaster that is Petra Kvitova. But if you really do buy into the upside, she's just... For my money, she's the most exciting player to watch. So just because you don't know what you're going to get. Not at all. Not at all. And she, and she has that she has that game where if everyone is at their best, I think you got to put Petra and Serena one and two. Agreed. And that's... Agreed 100%. Not, and probably in reverse order. Serena's probably ahead of Petra, both their best. Yes. But yeah, but that's that's it. And so with Petra there, you should worry Azarenka for sure because Petra's done very well against Azarenka historically. And if she can keep getting into more late rounds and facing Azarenka, it could really make uh, things tougher for her because she's had almost everyone's number besides Serena Azarenka. Yep. We've talked about it before, but going back to that one, the Australian semifinal of last year, yeah. where Petra narrowly lost out to Maria and really should not have lost to Maria. She really should have made the final there. You know, and, and I've said it before, but just I can't help my mind but th- to stop it from thinking like what happens if Petra plays Vika in that final? Yeah. Like how different is 2013 given her history against Vika and everything? So, so yeah, I mean, that is still, you know, this week we got the Petra versus Wozniacki matchup that we don't really get to see very often. And like two weeks ago in Doha, Petra versus Serena, which is always exciting. But Petra versus versus Vika is still one that, that I really, really, really want to see and hope to see maybe in Indian Wells or Miami. That'd be great. Bring it on. Mm-hmm. Uh, other big results from this week. Uh, we're recording this on Saturday, so we don't have all the finals in from these ATP tournaments, but that doesn't necessarily matter because I don't really know how much any of those results could matter. Um, <laughs> no, it's true because it's just the players who were left. It's not the most you know, intriguing groups. But a, a few interesting things happened. Uh, Courtney, you were mentioning 
being impressed by Jack Sock and what he did in Memphis. So what do you think about him? It seemed like he'd really had sort of fallen off since the U.S. Open. Yeah, I mean, he had really, well, I, I think that he really surged. You know, obviously he made the third round of the U.S. Open last year. And after that, I think he made the final of what challenger and then won a challenger. So he was still building some momentum and, you know, started the year 2013 at a career high, like one. 40 something maybe 148 I want to say but you know heading into Memphis he had been winless on the ATP tour this year you know part of that is due to injury and and part of it was just you know who knows you know trying to get rhythm or, or things like that but finally you know got his first win of the year beating Milos Raonic so that's quite the splash on indoors uh, you know a, a few days after Milos had won San Jose obviously no one saw this match unless you were there there was no streaming which is a knock against Memphis anyway but um, so it's hard to say, like, you know, how well Sock was, or I can't say that I was impressed with the performance because I didn't see it. Right. But it's an impressive result. And for him to then back that up and beat James Blake a day later, which, or, you know, a couple days later, which obviously it's Blake and he's ranked outside the top 100 and, you know, everybody kind of shrugs at that. But I think one of the things that I've definitely kind of sensed within Sock as I've watched him, you know, over the last couple of years is just that the kid knows how to win. Mm-hmm. You know, he has a history of it, you know, whether it's, you know, leading his high school team to like four straight championships and never losing a match, like going 80 and 0, I think, in his high school career to, to you know, just, yeah, pulling off big wins early in his career and being able to back them up. And won U.S. Open juniors, too. Right, won U.S. Open juniors, won mixed doubles with Melanie. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's just a lot of winning that goes along with all that. And um, so I'm, I, you know, and again, as a, you know, if you want to compare him to his kind of quote unquote contemporaries, even though they're not, because I think that they're a good, amount older than him um not amount but just in terms of experience with harrison and young you know sock actually plays american tennis like that style of tennis that we've become always so used to um that is born and bred in america just big serve big forehand hit big corn be aggressive corn fed tennis i love that yeah corn fed tennis you know, and to be aggressive, you know, that's that's where the game is going. That's what's going to be that that's going to be the style of game that wins. And that's why it's really easy to get excited about him. Not diff- not unlike the way that it, we get excited about Madison Keys right. in a way that we maybe get excited about her probably a little bit more than even Sloan. Yeah, more and definitely more than like Christina McHale, who doesn't right. have that it, sort of the offensive game, which we have seen produce results in the past for American players. Right. So I feel like the sock keys kind of parallels are, are, are you know, tangible and, and uh, they make sense. So, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot to like about sock. Very impressed by, by what he did in Memphis. Hopefully he can back it up in Delray, get his, his ranking. If he can crack, you know, the top 100 soon, then, you know, we'll get to see him a little bit more uh, at ATP tour events. But Meanwhile, the other ATP tournament that we're paying any attention to is in Marseille this week, where there was a big quarterfinal match between Sanga and... And Tomic, which Bernard Tomic had five match points and did not win. But Courtney, you still think there's reason to be encouraged by the uh, recent form of our young Bernie, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, in Marseille, I think in his opening round, he had he upset uh, Clizon and he beat him 9-7 in the third set tiebreak. Yeah. And then against Sanga, you know, got it to a third set tiebreak and lost it 12-10 in the tiebreak after holding five match points in that, that breaker, you know, in the big scheme of things, people are, to the extent that people are like disappointed in Tomek, I think that that has a lot to do with, with maybe the expectations 
that people think that like a Bernard Tomic should be beating Joe Wilfred Sanga on an indoor court in France. Yeah. Like, no. you know, like granted he was a point away from pulling off the upset, but I watched that tiebreaker I and Sanga, yeah. Sanga won those points. I mean, he went big um, and a lot of times saved them with aces or, you know, with some great winners. So, you know, there really wasn't much Tomic could have done on those on those on those points. But I'm definitely encouraged. You know, I mean, he had gone into he went into this tournament without having won a match since Australia because he lost to Dimitrov in Rotterdam last week. Sure. So, yeah. So he got two two wins over Cleason and, and Deverman and, you know, pushed Sanga to three. That's positive stuff from from our young Bernie. He's definitely one who I'm looking forward to seeing in Indian Wells, and uh, sure. definitely looking forward to talking to as well. He's a, he's what we Americans call a hoot, so <laughs> it'll it'll be fun. Yes. So one of the other big stories that caught on this week was about Rebecca Marino, who on Wednesday announced that she would be stepping away from the sport indefinitely. She didn't call it retirement. But it sure seemed like that was what she was hinting at. It didn't sound like she had any plans coming back. And uh, this came a few days after I had a piece published on her in the New York Times about the struggles she had had with cyberbullying in the past and Twitter abuse and just even stuff that wasn't necessarily directly bullying, like reading message boards and stuff like that. So it was a, it was a surprising week for her. And it's a story that really seemed to catch on a whole lot in Canada and all across all of their mainstream media caught on a fair amount in the U.S. too, I guess, across tennis circles and just a lot of the issues that it that it brought up. So, Courtney, I know you wanted to talk about this. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was I just wanted to talk to you specifically about it okay. because obviously you had written that piece in the New York Times, which I thought was great. And, and then just the next 48 hours of that story kind of sparking, whether it sparked anything or whether Marino knew that she was going to kind of throw her you know, throw in the towel by the time that piece was published. I mean, it all just seemed like a flurry of, of kind of attention on her um, over that 72 hour period. So I just kind of wanted to know, you know, how did you get the idea to even do the piece? You know, when had you talked to her and what was your sense as to kind of where she was at at the time that the, the piece went up at the New York Times? Okay. Um, I first, well, we were both at Indian Wells last year, which this is the first big tournament that she pulled out of due to quote-unquote personal reasons, I think was the diagnosis given for her withdrawal. So kept this, that started there and kept going. And that sort of, you know, immediately raised my eyebrows, I guess, was, you know, when you see something that's not a physical injury, it's not normal. So I was just sort of keeping an eye on her coming back, and she eventually did come back in the fall. And then I talked to her in Australia after she lost her first-round match. I was going to do a story on her there, actually, but she sort of ran out of time. First week of slams is very hectic and... I also thought it would kind of get lost in the shuffle if it was done there. So held on to it then for a while and got more time to talk to her on the phone uh, last week, I guess before she played in Memphis Qualies, and talked to her for you know about 45 minutes on the phone about the stuff that she'd brought up in Australia for the first time, which is how much she was asked why she had taken this layoff. She said she just felt a lot of pressure from uh, media and social media, and that was a huge part of it, and just the negative stuff that she was getting. And she was you know the one who said that was really when asked to give a reason why that was the thing she cited so we talked about that for a while and i wrote the piece and it came out on monday and she seemed very happy with it uh she tweeted something you know that she had liked it or something and a bunch of other canadian press picked up on it a bunch of hockey night in canada people who i follow through for hockey reasons so that was sort of mm-hmm. weird and fun 
And then she tweeted later that she, you know, and her people were saying that she was uh, being too sensitive and she said she was just being human. And then very suddenly on Monday night, she said, I've had enough of Twitter and Facebook. I'm going to, I might as well throw out my computer. I'm out of here. Peace. And shut down her Facebook and Twitter accounts. Although her Facebook sign-off message was much less uh, harried, I guess. It was just, you know, thanks for everything. feel like I don't need social media anymore. Bye-bye. Which is, you know, I don't think anybody would dispute that she had to stay on there. And then, um, so that was Monday night. Uh, and then Wednesday, Tennis Canada releases that she is announcing that she's stepping away from the game. So about 48 hours later. So that was, <laughs> I was just sort of like, uh, it's, uh, I did not expect that. Uh, she never made... Any mention of that, really, um, she talked about, when we talked, she talked about goals of, you know, trying to get back into directly qualifying for Grand Slam qualities, cut off, I guess, somewhere in the 200s, and other stuff that led me to believe that she, you know, wasn't going to stop so anytime soon. So it was, a, it was a confusing week. Right. And then, like, you know, obviously, once she had held her press conference announcing her, her stepping away from the game or, you know, retirement, whatever people want to think about it, you know, she revealed for the first time that she had been suffering from depression for the last uh, six years. Yeah. And that's really what had driven her to step away. And, and uh, she'd gotten treatment over the last seven months and things like that, which was, she says was the, the best idea for her. So obviously, once that news came out with respect to the depression, like, I feel like the stories really got conflated. Yeah, they did. In terms of why Marino was stepping away. And in certain instances, I felt like, you know, the, the social media aspect was like, was like pushed down to probably too much was based my, was my sense. And then other instances where the depression was completely ignored and it was like, you know, tennis player quits, retires because of, you know, Twitter messages. Right. And that's completely so, not that, that reading of it's completely not fair. Right. So I kind of was wondering what your sense of it was simply because you did talk to her and, and you did kind of have an in and, you know, spoke to her, I believe after the retirement announcement as well. So yeah, like what was your sense as to what was going on with Marino and, and, and why she stepped away and how social media played any part in it at all? She was she was on a conference call after her retirement that Tennis Canada organized for her. And she did actually, to her credit, I guess she did a ton. She's done a ton of press in the last week since this article, since I guess she announced her retirement. She's been going on TV, holding in-person press conferences and stuff like that. Um, in the press comp, in the telephone call, she made it clear that she kept saying the reason she was stepping away from tennis is that she no longer had the passion uh, or the desire to commit to the sport to the amount necessary to be back where she was. And while some people can say, "Oh, that's depression makes you lose interest in things," she never specifically said that. Really, she said, uh, "Depression and social media abuse are just two things that I want to talk about, but neither of them is why I'm quitting tennis." So I think to give it to give her departure any one simple answer you know or one word diagnosis of why she's leaving the game i think it's probably selling it short and i understand why that happens especially if it's something like a yahoo homepage article which there was you know you need this, this splashy takeaway from it and even if that is sacrificing some you know truth tr and content truth yeah so i i get why that happens it's not good that that happens but i understand why that happens uh yeah she just said that she didn't have the commitment to stay with tennis and to give up being away from her family that long and that's just that's normal i mean the amount i don't think people people might say oh marino is the exception here to be able to you know not put up with all demands of tennis but i really think that to a large extent people who can put up with demands of tennis and go out and work six hours a day and travel around the world only lose first round all the time. Those are sort of the incredible people 
And those are the abnormal ones who can keep up with tennis for that long. And Marino just decided she couldn't. And obviously, when she talked about the depression on Wednesday, it, it, it sort of explained why uh, the social media abuse had been so especially damaging to her and why she'd taken it harder. But I think also just as she, after she talked about the social media abuse and the article had been published by me, I think she just felt a lot more comfortable being open about stuff. I mean, there's, right. she's done interviews subsequent to the conference call where she revealed the depression, which has even gone as far to say that, you know, she had moments where she was, you know, thinking about suicide and stuff. And I feel like that, and that didn't come up in the conference call. That certainly didn't come up when we talked, although she, yeah, it just didn't. She clearly, as she has gotten better reception for the stuff, she feels more empowered, I guess, to keep revealing more of her story. So I think it was just always going to sort of be a, an onion thing with how this story broke in terms of, you know, telling parts at a time and, letting it unfold that way. Yeah. And I would think that uh, my sense from her kind of what she said on the, the, well, in her press that she's done since the announcement is that she's willing to use this platform to talk about these issues of depression and, and social media abuse and things like that. And, and it's not like she doesn't strike me as someone who's going to grow resentful, I guess, and kind of stop and be like, no, that's not why I quit. Like, yeah. And kind of, dismiss the whole depression because those were also you know those were aspects of of her last year that impacted her as well and yeah. you know and I think that she's probably even herself I mean I, if I was in her situation still untangling or trying to untangle how all of that really related or or, impa- or impacted her I guess is the right way to say it there were some columns written or some tweets sent by people who had written about it through the depression angle um, who were saying, oh, you know, shut up about the social media. That had nothing to do with it. She didn't quit because of that. No one's ever quit because of that. That was never, Rebecca never, in all the questions she got about social media on the conference call anyway, and I, from what I could sense in subsequent press conferences she's done as well, she never, you know, tried to shut down that part of it completely. She may have downplayed it, but she she was never, she was always happy to have that conversation be, you know, raised. If she's If she's bringing awareness to more than one problematic area of the world, I think she's happy about that i don't think she's saying no 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 no. this is why i'm leaving not that don't write that she's you know willing to keep a, a wide umbrella i guess on all the things that have played parts in it and blowing up one at the expense of the others is not good i mean you shouldn't write an article saying she quit because of social media i ignore the depression angle of it completely that's not fair but yeah but talking about one does not necessarily make it bad i guess fair point it's i mean it's a complex issue and it's one that you know, was handled, I think, on the whole, rather delicately and, and quite well by, by you know, for the most part, all media outlets. It was funny, though, because I did get an email from a friend of mine, a former co-worker of mine, who uh, emailed me. And the subject of the email was, couldn't she have just quit Twitter? And then sent me a link to the Yahoo link yeah. to the story, which had the, the headline was, quits because of Twitter abuse or social media abuse or something. And I had to write back and be like, actually, no, I mean, she was depressed and she, you know, there's also kind of a lack, lack of passion in the game and blah, 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 blah. And he's like, oh, yeah, I didn't read the article. And <laughs> I was just like, and I was like, and that's why writers go absolutely nuts when people, you know, when their editors or copy editors write headlines that just completely misconstrue the content of what they wrote. But yeah. But yeah, so it was a bit unfortunate. But but yeah, I mean, it was it was an interesting week. I mean, it was it was good for her. I mean, to kind of uh, be able to step up and and kind of take ownership, I think, and, and control of things because I think a lot of times in depression, when someone's in a state of depression, like they feel like everything's completely out of control. Yeah. And and I can see how within the tennis world, 
you can even see even more of that or feel more of that because like nothing is in your control. You have a schedule, you hop on a plane, you go from place to place and you're kind of like on a treadmill and there's no autonomy. Really, if you don't, if you're already in a situation where like you are inclined to think you don't have autonomy. So yeah, I mean, you know, and I think we didn't mention it, but on the same day that Marino had quit her account, Laura Robson had suspended hers. Yeah. Due to she had lost that day to, in the first round of of Dubai to Yulia Putinseva and got some 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 messages that were not great and that kind of capped off I think which probably a, a couple of really crappy weeks for Laura Robson in the Middle East she lost in the first round of Doha as well and she got her jewelry stolen yeah she got her jewelry stolen in Oman a lot of like sentimental pieces of jewelry that were basically kind of irreplaceable so she was I'm sure in a bit of a, a, a in very much a, a negative headspace but uh, but she did reactivate a day later so there was part of me that kind of wished that I could be like a fly on the wall the day the, the moment her agent woke up and realized her client had deleted a Twitter account that had 170,000 followers yeah. but um because there is a business aspect to this for certain players. Oh, but, for sure. um, but yeah, it was, you know, I mean, I think that it started a, a really good conversation about about the, how we treat each other online and, and how we treat complete and utter strangers. And I think that, like for myself, I had posted um, a thing on, on 40 Deuce yeah. um, just about the time that, you know, I was, or I and my friends were the subject of, of kind of social media abuse with respect to that blog. And that came out before Marino had announced her retirement and that she had been suffering from depression. And one of the big things that I had kind of, one, one of the major points that I tried to make in my post was you don't know where somebody is when you make that comment. Yeah, where they're at mentally, yeah. Yeah, like you might think what you're saying is like some totally off-the-cuff, sarcastic like thing, and it could just really hit somebody hard. And that's not necessarily your fault, and that's not necessarily their fault, but like that's why I just like think twice. And I don't mean to even be like somebody who's like on the high horse about it, because I know that I use sarcasm, and I know that I can be biting in my humor and things like that, but at least I do actually employ the rule of like, would I say this to this person to their face? If so, then yeah, I'll tweet it. Otherwise, then no, I'll probably sit on it. Yeah, pretty much. But, and I think one thing I didn't stuff. one thing I didn't mention before is that when I talked to Rebecca more off- offline about this after after the article come after she deleted her Twitter, actually, she had said that she had deleted her Twitter and Facebook, or she made it clear during the conference call that she deleted them because she knew that she was going to make this announcement on Wednesday, and that she didn't want the backlash from that. Nothing happened, like, there was no additional, really, abuse that she got on Monday after the New York Times article. There was, like, a message board that was, a couple message boards were, like, occasionally critical, and she definitely did seem like she read those and did not actually take them well. But the actual stuff she got on Twitter and Facebook was overwhelmingly positive. So I think, and I think that also encouraged her to be more open in subsequent interviews. Because, you know, she got messages from teachers saying, thanks for speaking out about cyberbullying, bullying is such a big issue at our schools, such and such, and that was... That was very uh, pleasing to her, I guess. Yeah. And one thing that, I mean, a lot of the focus on the cyberbullying aspect has been on Twitter and Facebook. But I will say within the tennis world, do not underestimate the amount that tennis players read tennisforum.com. Oh, yeah. Because they do. Especially, I mean, obviously the women. Um, I've heard it from a number of different uh, you know, girls or women. I've heard it from their parents, that their parents look on there as well and it's not an island at all no i mean they read it and they read it sometimes obsessively and you know it's not just the twitter and and stuff and obviously you know some of them run searches for their own name i mean obviously a lot they're looking for they're asking not asking for it because that's a horrible way to, to to phrase it 
But, you know, when you're off searching and running searches for yourself, like you're kind of that's going overboard in terms of trying to find information about what people are saying about you, as opposed to like at mentions and things like that. But just generally, you know, we should all be pretty, you know, thoughtful. That was a big part of the stuff that got Rebecca, you know, that really sort of hit her the hardest first early on was, you know, the message board topics, the tennis forum stuff, exactly like that. And there is an element of, you know, well, why don't you just stop doing that, you know? What are you doing if you know that it's painful for you? Stop searching yourself. But I understand from players, you know, who I've talked to, and, you know, even, I guess, a little bit myself, knowing there are people who, you know, will write things about you on other websites. It can be, if you know that's out there, it can be hard not to, not to look, right. to see what, the, what exactly that is. So that's all. So that was, that was an interesting week. And it seems like she is in a pretty good place right now, and hopefully will be settling into a, uh, a, a normal Canadian life in Vancouver. It's a shame, though, because you and I were talking about this offline. It's, it's just, you know, for women's tennis or tennis as a, as a whole, it 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 it's a loss of a normal. Yeah, it is. She was definitely that, a normal. There, there's a handful of tennis players that that I would consider normal human beings, like people who I would, yeah, that that aren't quirky or kind of kooky about their their just the way that they are, and, and and that is you know the normal ones are the abnormal ones because most of the time everybody else is is pretty weird, not in a necessarily negative way, not, like no, a lot of times in an awesome way, like they're weird. But you know you kind of have to be when you're on the road for eleven months out of the year, and you a lot of them didn't finish high school and kind of just had odd socialization, you know, through their adolescent years. So a lot of them are just kind of a little off, like they're not people that I would be like. I would meet and be like totally comfortable with, but Marina was always a normal and I really always enjoyed speaking with her and, and she was smart and she got it. And so that's a shame. It is indeed. Let's move on to somebody who's sadly not a normal. <laughs> that is Yelena Yankovic and everything that her, her, she entails when she takes court and she takes the tournament by storm. This week she decided to fly from this is Elena's travel schedule. She played Australia, and then she, I guess, next played Doha. Was, uh, was she not in Serbia? Did she not fly home to Serbia? I think she she did. So yeah, Elena, okay. Elena fl- flew from Australia to Serbia, Serbia to Doha, Doha to Bogota, Colombia, and then after that she's coming back to the U.S. So she's racking up some miles, Elena. That is some crazy, crazy traveling. It is. Bogota. She has found herself surrounded. She was in the quarterfinals with such <laughs> as... Uh, let me pull this up. Alexandra Cadantu, Karen Knapp, Lara Arruabrena-Vicino, Mer- <laughs> Tita Toro, Paula Ormachea, Mandy Mella, and Teliana Pereira. Those are her fellow quarterfinalists surrounding this former WTA number one at but, this international but, but ben, playing court tournament in February. But Ben, but surely, surely she's blitzed through the competition in Bogota. Surely, mm, you know. as a as a two time French Open semifinalist on clay, mm-hmm. surely she has just obliterated the field, barely breaking a sweat. You know, you would think so, but she dropped a set to Julia Cohen in the first round. Then she actually did okay in her next two matches against Duque Marino and Cadantu. Cadantu, I never understand how Cadantu wins a point, much less a match. <laughs> and then she needed a third set tiebreak to get past Karen Knapp. And uh, next she's going up against Paola Ormachea in the final, which will be on Sunday after we record this. But yeah, it just seems like this, if she wanted a title here, I mean, she looks like she's probably going to get it at this point, but she came close to not getting it. 
Well, hold on. She has on a streak of being 0-5 in finals. Her last title was 2010 Indian Wells, where she beat Caroline Wozniacki. So this is going on three years that Yelena hasn't won a title. In those five losses, she has lost to, in finals, she has lost to the likes of Melanie Udan in Birmingham. Uh. She lost to Roberta Vinci in Dallas. Yeah. She lost to Sharapova in Cincinnati. Okay. Um, that was a good match, she, actually. That was a good. I mean, it was well, it was drama. It was not. That was that. That was the hand, the JJ hand. I don't remember JJ hand. Was there? Was there a oh, Justine? No, it was Maria. No, it was Maria hand. Like a Justine incident. It was, yeah, yeah. Maria was trying to slow down JJ, and JJ went went off on Cater, and it was hilarious. Because then, like, up until that point, it was early in the first set. And up until that point, it had been just kind of a straightforward match. And then after that, it became straight up backyard boletaries, where both of them were, like, glaring at each other and fist pumping at each other. It was glorious. It was peak WTA. It's all you want, really. All I want. But yes, JJ has lost a lot of finals to people she shouldn't be losing finals to. So do I think that she'll beat Ormachia? Yes. Would I be surprised if she lost? No, no definitely not. <laughs> So I mean, what 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 do we make of, of JJ going down to South America fishing for for scraps in this in this manner? Well, that couldn't have been a cheap flight. No, and like she's there not by herself. She has like an entire entourage. If you follow her on Twitter, you've seen some of the pictures. She has like I think her brother is there and like a trainer and like one other person. Like she has four people, like including her. That's four people that she flew to Bogota now, and is picking up. I'm hoping that she got some appearance fee money for this. Being a former number one, I would hope that she got some. You know what? Money. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe she's she's chasing the cash. Which, okay. How old is she now? Twenty eight. Oh, is she that old? Um, I don't think she's that old. Is she? She is. Let me look. She's twenty seven. Yeah, she's not young. Okay. Not young, but. But yeah, I don't know, JJ. And, I don't. And know. Weird, well, she's turning twenty eight in five days. The weird thing about this um, is that she skipped Dubai to play this. Is and Dubai is actually where her residence is listed in her profile. So Yeah, but she wasn't going to get paid by Dubai. No, definitely not. So we'll see. So, JJ, our original plan for this, top, for this topic was just to sort of belly laugh at the thought of JJ slumming it in, in Bogota the whole time, which we, we'll do next time, I guess. But. We'll do it next time. And to be fair, we, did, we kind of wasted our belly laugh when we were <laughs> brainstorming about this topic in the first place. And we started laughing hilarious, like just nonstop. So. Yeah. But, you know, the tour is, you know, the tour is a little less JJ these days, and that's not a good thing. No, no. A little less glitter. A little less, a little less glitter. A little less rock and roll. A little less baritone. Yeah. Need it. Need it. BT Dub, I'm just looking, because <laughs> I Googled Yankovic just to get her age. And on the little, like, Google, you know, profile thing on the right, it says education from Megatrend University. <laughs> Which is like an incredible name of a university. It's like a, it's like a fashion school, I guess. Is that what it is? Megatrend. It sounds like it. Yep. Is it actually a fashion it, school? Megatrend University is the University of Lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> and here are the valley last oh, we're waiting for. They, oh, Novak goes there too, apparently, because because the Megatrend student is the best in the world and has a picture of, of Novak. Oh. oh my goodness, you guys, look up www megatrend-edu.net That's a great URL too. It's a tremendous URL. It is phenomenal. Look it up. It has been considered the leader in higher education for more than two decades now as far as Southeast Europe region is concerned. Oh boy. It's like how my university was the best university in Irvine. Yeah. Like that was like a brag. Oh. Not really. 
Anyways, sorry. That's okay. No, no, never apologize for JJ facts. We'll have to ask her about that. If, if her if her diploma is hanging on the wall of her enormous San Diego mansion. That is unfurnished. Yes, but I have diploma, so. <laughs> so our first question this week comes from For All Surfaces, who asks, Why do you think that Buenos Aires and Marseille had better, deeper fields than Memphis, which had double the points? Uh, Memphis is a 500, the other two are 250s. Is it travel, surface, location? What? Courtney, what do you think? Why was the Memphis field so poor in comparison to those other smaller tournaments? I think that it's just a reflection as to this, the change in the tennis landscape in terms of geography and where the top players come from. I mean, Marseille, which was a 250, had five top 10 players. All of those, those five that were there were, are all European. Mm. So Burdick, Songa, oh no, Del Potro was in Marseille, yeah. as opposed to Buenos Aires, which is kind of funny in its own right, um, and probably a story separately, um, as to why he didn't want to play in his own hometown. Yeah, I've heard for him that actually it's surface related. He doesn't want to play on clay. Yes, he doesn't want to play on clay at all. But yeah, so, you know, uh, Tipsarovic was there, I think Gasquet. So yeah, the five of the top 10 in Marseille, zero top 10 in Memphis, which is a ATP 500 tournament. And it just... You know, and then you have, you know, uh, Ferrer and Albandian and, you know, Almagro and those guys down in Buenos Vavrinka, Aires. I mean, Vavrinka, yeah. yeah. A lot of that, I mean, I think that the quality field in Buenos Aires has a lot to do with the surface. I think there are players that just want to play on clay. So there's that. I think at the same time, never underestimate the, the concept of, of appearance fees because outside of the Masters and the Slams, any tournament can offer appearance fees to get a good fee, quality field yeah. if they want it. And that's that's so, the huge one, I think, for a lot yeah, of that. So that there's that. But I mean, but again, like we can't ignore the fact that, you know, you have a tournament like Memphis, it's an ATP 500 for the last year, it'll be a 250 next year, when Memphis moves the 500 tournament to Rio, and um, the San Jose 250 will move to Memphis. So it'll be 250 next year. But the bottom line is there are no Americans in the top 10. There are no North Americans in the top 10. Yeah. You know, you have Isner, you have Raonic, you have all the people who you would think would play the Memphis tournament. But they're not top players. And that tournament, you know, they can't even afford to have streams in the early rounds. Like, do we think that they're shelling out cash to try and field a, 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 a quality field? Probably not. Probably not. Um, no. At the end of the day, you know, in WTA tournaments, and I'll admit, I haven't gone back and reread the ATP rulebook in a while. But, but with WTA tournaments, because of the roadmap you have to guarantee a certain level of field for different levels of tournaments. And if you don't, then the WTA has to fi- has to pay a fine to the tournament. So in other words, if you're a, a premier tournament and you are promised like four out of 10 top 10 players and the WTA can only deliver you three, then the WTA pays you a fine. And usually that fine will either come from the WTA or it'll come from finding a player who withdraws or something like that. So yeah, I mean, I think it's geography. I think it's surface, but I think a lot of it at least the, the the prevailing story for me is just that's just how te- that's just the international nature of tennis anymore. The, North America is not a not a focus. That's true. The, it's not a power. One reason I think that it is a lot to do with appearance money, maybe more than some other examples of this, is that last year Marty Fish played Marseille 
over Memphis. Oh, that's right. And then when lost and he to got Albano paid, Olivetti. Yeah, he lost to Albano Olivetti in the first round of Marseille and took and he and it was admitted he took I think something like I'm a little rusty on this number. But I think it's something like three hundred thousand dollars to play yeah. the combo of Marseille and Dubai because they're owned by the same people. And yeah, that's a big factor. People players will go where the money is and. I think that makes sense to top players. However, I do think more of the sort of middle rank players, more of the guys who aren't going to get money in the 20s, 30s, 40s, should have gone to Memphis because there were points to be had in Memphis. That's just free points. I mean, Mike, I mean Michael Russell huge... made the quarters after being a lucky loser and had to beat no one in particular to get there. He beat Bogomolov and Lukas Kubo to get to the quarterfinals in Memphis, and he rose like 20 spots in the rankings, and he passed Ryan Harrison. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it was a huge... Missed opportunity for Query, Harrison, and Isner. Yeah. All players who, you know, you expect to make the semifinals at least. Yeah, and that's why it was and so big it. for Sock to take advantage of this of this mm-hmm. opportunity when he had it. Obviously, he didn't have as big an opportunity as others really because he, he had to face Ronich first round. But once he got past Ronich, I mean, that was a huge that match against Blake points-wise was, was big. Yeah, and had he beat Feliciano Lopez, he would have been right outside the top 100. Yeah. I mean, and he started the tournament, like, I think raked in the 170s. 180s maybe so that's how many points were up for grabs in memphis and yet you know and there's good barbecue there yeah. and good food music you can go see graceland yeah. like why the hell would you not play memphis just for the points it would have been strategically it would have been so smart for a lot of kind of the mid-range players to to head over there but Even- you know like if like tomic like, if Tomic had come over and, like, won the tournament, that would have been huge for him. 500 points on his ranking. Yeah. Nishikori huge. looks like he's... Yeah. Nishikori's in the final now, and he's probably going to get the 500 points. That's huge. I mean, Roddick's ranking um, for a long time was propped up by Memphis points when he won Memphis, uh, 500 points. I mean, you see even another 500 with uh, Federer. When he lost his Rotterdam points last week, that was a big blow to his ranking. And he has Dubai 500 points coming up, too. I mean, it just takes two 500s. Even if 500s really don't seem like the biggest, you know events in the tour really focal points ever uh two 500s equals a thousand hashtag simple math so you know yeah two 500s is one masters yeah you know and considering that some of the masters like indian wells and miami are two weeks long yeah like you're not even talking about a situation where like you're putting in more necessarily more work i mean yeah you'll play more matches but you know in terms of the actual time taken up by in the calendar by two 500 tournaments like it's not more necessarily so so, yeah, I mean, uh, good for Nishikori, you know, for making good on that. Even Marinko, Marinko Matasevich made the semis in Memphis, which, again, speaks to the field. And mm-hmm. he's, you know, now the number one Australian again, ahead of Tomic. Perfect example of how those two picked their schedules and what it did for them. Now, maybe long run, Tomic is somebody with higher ambitions. Maybe he thinks that getting matches in against the likes of Saga and stuff is better for him long run. And maybe that's true, but there were points to be had there for sure. No doubt. Ova Fanboy asks us about one of his favorite players. He says the Putin Seva show was decidedly toned down in Dubai. Does her game make up for the sudden lack of over-the-top entertainment value? Courtney, what did you think of Yulia's big week in Dubai? My general reaction to the Yulia Putin Seva non-show that was in Dubai, because let's... I'm Well, okay, I'm, I'm not going to say that this is like a blanket statement that applies to everybody. But I think that there's a strong, very vocal subset of WTA fan who only care about Yulia Putinseva to the extent that she kind of loses her temper and, uh, you know, engages in her weird, gamey, fiery, intense antics. Puts on a it's show. Not, yeah, she puts on a show. It's not because of her tennis. Because she is undersized. 
she can run, but she's still not the fastest of anybody. She doesn't impress you in any way. You know, she has some, she has relatively good touch. She had some good drop shots against Laura Robson in that match. But yeah, I mean, watching that match, it was like showing up to see what I've said is that it's like, it was like showing up to a concert where you thought it was going to be sleigh bells and it turned out to be Taylor Swift. Yeah. Like it was just too, kind of toothless and, you know, it worked for her. She won. She was remarkably calm against Laura Robson. But is that why I think Yulia Putinseva is a name that people know? No. No, that's not how she made her, her uh, brand known early on in her in her career when she was still like, I think we discovered, we, we compared her before on, we talked about her once previously. It's like an indie band. It was very underground scene. Like if you know, you're going to go out to court 17 at some small tournament and, or at some, you know, grand slam in the juniors or in qualifying and go watch Yulia Putin say that. Cause she will put on a good show for you. And that wasn't the case this week. Now she did play pretty well against, uh, Red Von Scud in the second round, too. She lost she five and three. And she did do some pretty smart things. I mean, she was very, very consistent. Mixed up her spins well and hit some good drop shots. And so the tennis, I was more impressed with her, for sure, on the tennis side, on what thinking her potential could be than it had been previously. But I was less eager to see her again. So She, she becomes, if you take away kind of all of the antics, she becomes kind of a cookie cutter. She no longer has the personality that draws you to a player she becomes a player who what is she like a a combination of like an irani like i don't know like kerber maybe like an irani a little bit of wozniacki maybe but there's a little was and then there's a little bit of of just chibokko with the height she is crazy short she is crazy short yulia putin save is crazy short but are any of those things a reason why i would rustle myself out of bed at three o'clock in the morning to watch her play tennis probably not i would still go so i would still go tune into the end of her match if the score was close because i think that's when her her um personality was coming out more in these matches mm-hmm. but in terms of yeah. sitting down from the beginning and getting a big tub of popcorn not quite the same but hope maybe that'll okay. change one day because i think that it is a uh, a show worth tuning into it is our final question today is from vikesh who asks us, who do you think will be the next first-time slam champion on the men's and women's side? And which slam? Seems like a simple question enough, Courtney. Um, it's not maybe as easy as we think it might be. Who's your pick for next first-time slam champ men's and women's? Let's start with the men, and we'll do women next. Who do you think for men? Who do I think for the men? Um, well, I don't think it's going to be David Ferrer. No. So let's go ahead and brush that aside yeah i mean i think that that you know for me it, it would be between burdick and sangha um and i think probably i would back burdick before i would back sangha i just think that there's he kind of has that it's not a chip on his shoulder but the edge i suppose to kind of prove himself in a way that i don't really feel that sangha has so mentally, I think that he's actually closer to kind of getting to that breakthrough. And I, I really think that the U.S. Open, had he not had that semifinal against Andy Murray, not been the wind-strewn hurricane that it was. He could have won it. He definitely could have won it. And I, uh, given the way that he was playing, it would have been very interesting to see him go up against Djokovic in, in the final. So, yeah, I, I would have to say Burdick. Burdick is my pick, too. Just, Damn it! I know, I know. We're not gonna... I hate it when we agree. It's so boring. We should, we should try to embrace debate more, I realize, but we're not going to do that. Um, <laughs> Burdich, I agree, because he also is good at all four slams. He's made the semis. He hasn't made the semis in Australia, but he's made the semis the other three, and he's made a hardcore semi. So no reason to think he can't do well in Australia, too. Yeah, and he just is pretty... When his at his best, he can beat any of the other 
anybody in the top four. And that's what yep. it comes down to. He has wins against all the other guys um, in big events. I mean, actually, not at all at a slam, I don't think, but he's beaten him at other tournaments. So it can happen. And yeah, and he just had that sort of that hunger, that chip on his shoulder. I just completely plus one everything you say. So I agree with hmm. that. I think it's not Sanga. I think it's definitely not Tipsarovich or Ferrer. Um, Tipsarovich, I mean, not even in that conversation. If it takes longer, now, if this doesn't happen for another three years, which is very possible. Yeah. Uh, then, the, then the, you know, it changes. I think Tomic has to be a sort of dark horse for this. He can get here at Wimbledon one year in the next, you know, two, three years. He could do it. So we'll see. I think there's a, a few few decent candidates. You put Tomic ahead of Raonic if we're going three years yep, out? absolutely. Absolutely. Raonic just doesn't have the wins over big guys or even the, you know. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. But, and he doesn't and have... Tomic and does? Tomic, maybe not wins, but he does have... He did make a Wimbledon quarter and give it a pretty good scare to Djokovic in that quarter when Djokovic won Wimbledon in 2011. And he he has... Uh, yeah, and Ronich hasn't made a quarter of a slam yet. And I think Tomic's upset is bigger than Ronich. It's just a way more complete game. That's totally fair. I'm not disagreeing. I'm just asking. So, yeah, that's what I think. Yep. Cool. All right. Um, women. You go. I, I tick guys first. You go women first. Okay. Um, women is way tougher uh, because there's a few possible candidates. And the thing we were actually talking a little bit this week. There are just so many more women who have to be considered relevant in Grand Slams than there are men. Yep. Because every single woman in the top uh, 16 has made the semifinals of either a slam or the Olympics. And that's just Kirilenko just made the Olympic semis. And every single woman in the top 11, except for Kerber, has made a slam final. And Kerber's made two slam semis. So it's just a lot of people. My pick for the first one to actually break through, uh, it's tough. Um, I'm going to pick Marion Bartoli. <laughs> uh, there's a few other candidates who I think are there are great arguments for. But Bartoli, I think just she has it in her to completely zone and be untouchable. And if she and she was doing really well at the US Open even last year. If she had mm-hmm. kept it up, uh, I guess that was a really tough draw she would have had for herself. But if she can get in a tournament where she's playing her best and she can play on all surfaces okay at this point. I mean she did make the semis of the French ones. She can she can be there and just be a scary juggernaut to be reckoned with. So I'll pick her. I think time is definitely ticking on her. But in terms of if it's going to happen the next, if it's going to happen this year, I'll take Marion. Okay. Courtney, who do you have? It's tough. I Marion's name also jumped out at me, but I'm going to try and not pick her. Okay. Um, just for argument's sake, and I know it's a kind of a joke, but I really do think it's Wozniacki. Mm, okay. I think it is Caroline. I think that. To me, it, to me, if it's not Bartoli, it's between Caroline and, and Redvanska. And I put Caroline a tick ahead simply because like she, just her competitive ability is she's less inclined to like check out of matches the way that that Rodvanska can. I think that that, you know, obviously Caroline has, you know, wins over. Has she beaten Maria? She's beaten Maria, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, she has wins over the top, the top four. And I think that, you know, do I think that Caroline can win? on her own merits. No, I think the draw has to break wildly her way. I think that it, it, it does her well to get her ranking up as high as she possibly can to avoid a lot of like, you know, clashes with the Kvitovas in the, of the world um, early on. But yeah, I don't know. I just, I, one thing that I've always just really liked about Caroline is her, her, her competitive, her competitive spirit, which is 
really, really underrated. And, yeah, mental toughness. I think she is top three for sure. For sure. For sure. Right, right so maybe I mean Azarenka has gotten a lot better on that front recently, but mm-hmm, Caroline mm-hmm. has always been right there. Even I've never really heard anyone say, "Oh, Caroline should have won that match," but she didn't. Or Caroline tanked. Caroline never tanked. Like or or Caroline gave up. Yeah. Like Peter will not let her. No. Even if she wanted to. Um. So so yeah, I'm gonna go with Wozniak. It's a pretty good pick. So let's for the women. Let's talk about who we didn't pick and why. Why did we not pick Red Vaska when she's number four and she made Wimbledon final? Because I think that her performance in that Wimbledon final at times can be kind of overblown. Uh, granted, yes, it went three, and she took a set off Serena, and it was on grass. But Serena really had a, a significant dip in form oh, yeah. in that final. And, and so, you know, that really could have been a, a, a straight set 6-1, 6-2 sort of final, and it wasn't. And that was all about Serena. So, um, you know, I think that it's, Redvanska has shown, particularly over the last couple of weeks, that she just doesn't have the firepower. She she doesn't have, not even a firepower, but she doesn't have a defense to the firepower. So this week she was knocked out. Kvitova. Kvitova, yeah. And then last week it was uh, Azarenka in the semifinals. So, yeah, I, I just, you just don't really see her being able to get through certain players. So across two weeks, seven matches, she'd have to go up against, a, you know, seven players who who were relatively weaponless for her to do it. I, I probably agree with that. The draw could break her way, but she would need some breaks. She's not going to beat Serena in a slam. She's not going to beat Azarenka in a slam. She's going to have a tough time beating Sharapova in a slam. Probably not going to be Kvitova in a slam either. So those are a bunch of strikes against her. And Lina is 50-50. Um, let's talk about why we didn't pick Kerber, who's also up there. Go ahead. Kerber, I guess, it's just recently turned south. I mean, Kerber, I would have maybe endorsed like last summer come around between after Wimbledon and she has the fight for it and she's another one like Wozniacki I think they're pretty much on the same level with how they compete against the big ones and that what they can do and Kerber does have more wins against the top people I think than uh, Wozniacki recently anyway so I don't know I, I put Kerber on about the same level as Wozniacki but I didn't pick either of them and I put the same thing actually about Irani who I think could have a draw break her way at the French Open she did make the final last year after all and if she had run into somebody who wasn't Sharapova uh, maybe it could have gone differently. But, uh, yeah, I think all those people just don't control their own destiny quite enough, which is why I went with Marion, because she, you know, Marion is the one who can be a real force to be reckoned with without having the draw break her way completely. And she has that fire. Yeah. I mean, that's a big reason why I picked Wozniacki, if not Bartoli, is just because I know with both Bartoli and Wozniacki, there is this, like, sense of, like, that slam is a thing that they are entitled to. Yeah. That they want it, they've earned it, they deserve it. And I think that that's a little bit different from a Red Vonska or a Recurver, where I feel like they're still in a process of kind of coming to grips or trying to figure out if they're overachieving or, like, achieving. Yeah. Right? Like, I think there's a sense that maybe, like, this a small part of their, a small voice in the back of their head is like, well, you know, number four in the world, you never thought you were going to get here. Like, this is crazy. Um <laughs> And same with Kerber, uh, as opposed to being like, yep, this is exactly like your level. This is how good you are. I'm not sure that they've really I've, come to terms with reconciling those two. I buy that more with Kerber goals. than with Radvansko, because Radvansko is a really, really good junior. And so I feel like she probably thinks she's a little bit more entitled than Kerber does. Mm. But I also the way that Radvansko is talking about wanting to be number one for just a week last year was also not very encouraging. Yeah. The other name I think we should mention in terms of why we didn't pick her, just because she has been trending up lately... Um, is Sloan. Do we think Sloan has any outside chance of being the first one here? Oh. 
Did make the semis in Australia. She did make the semis. Um, no, yeah. I'm going to say no. I would agree. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, you know, I it, it, maybe again, down... again, it depends on how long it takes for the next one to happen. Right. Like down the road. Absolutely. I mean, time is on her side, but um, is she going to win before a new person wins? I'm not sure. You know, I mean, as, as stable as WTA is, it's not it's not the ATP. It's not the top four with like a monopoly on the big four slams. So um, every single year. So I just I don't know. I mean, I think that there is a great chance for a first time winner every single time a slam kicks off. And I don't think I put Sloan in the top five of candidates for that. Other names I'm just going to throw out there just to be considered are just in sort of that, you know, five through 10 range of this list that could be there. Like Mona Bartle. I think people think she has a lot of upside, even if she has had no real big slam results yet. Pavlyuchenkova, I feel like it's, you know, a few steps away from at least getting to be a top 10 player. And maybe slam comes with that eventually. Laura Robson and Madison Keys, I think both are on the sort of long-term radar for people. So. Yeah, definitely kind of long term, you know, because um, a big part of it is just doing the work that needs to get done outside the slams to get your ranking up to maximize your chances. Yeah. So that's a big part of it. That is indeed. Now it is time for us to take a number. It's our weekly segment where we pick a number between one and 100 and find the ATP and WTA player who correspond to that number in the rankings. And we talk about that person or persons or man and woman for a while. So, Courtney, you ready to ready to roll the dice here? Always ready. Here we go. Our the, 100, the 100-sided dice. 100-sided die. Pick for a fun game of Monopoly with the stupid new cat piece. Our number Agreed. is 54. Right down the middle, as per usual. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. We don't sound excited. <laughs> we're we're dealing with it. All right, Courtney. Courtney, who is who is the woman at number fifty four here? Number fifty four is a Spaniard, yeah. uh, who wears a headband, and is has a very strong base. This is these are the things that I always notice about her. She's very strong uh, in her legs. Uh huh. And that person is Lourdes Dominguez Lino. Okay, I have a story about her, which at least will fill some time. <laughs> Yay! Um, the number 54 guy is um, one of the older players on the tour. They're not quite 54 just yet. He is 31 years old. His top player from his country, really the only player from his country, now man or woman, and he is Yarko Niemannen. Ah, the Yark the Shark. Yarko. All right, so let's start with, let's start with Lourdes Dominguez Lino. I have one story about her. Um, which um, I was going to the Bronx Challenger in 2009, and um, there are all these players wandering around who I didn't really recognize because I hadn't been you know, doing the pro tournaments that long, and they were all also pretty obscure. And there was a table near the small, very, very improvised media area there that was like um, for players to get their meal credits or something, go up there and they give their names. And they didn't have any of the results from earlier in the day posted, and so, but I saw the matches that had already happened. One of them that had already happened was Vanya King versus Lourdes Dominguez Lino. And I hear this person behind me go up to the table and was like, uh, meal credit for Dominguez, please. And so they're like, okay. And I was like, oh, hi, did, did, did you win today? And she just looked at me and these like tears started welling up in her eyes. And she was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and to this day, I, have, I will never, ever ask a player if they won or not again, because have fifty percent chances they lost, and they will not be happy to relive it. As Lord Dominguez Lino taught me, 
So that's my only anti-Tibet Lord in Vegas, you know. That's all that I have. Classic. That's all I have. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't really have much either. She's not a player who exactly um, draws your attention when she's in the draw. Yeah. You know, she's she's done well to be 54. Um, she hasn't won a match, unless she won a match this week. Uh, she hasn't won a match uh, this year. I think she was in Bogota. Oh, was she? I think okay, so. She, she was in Bogota. I can pull up her results, the results here. She was the number three seed in Bogota, and she lost second round to Karen Knapp. So she okay. beat she she won a first round match against Catalina Castaño. There you go, Catalina Castaño, who made the final the week before, in Cali. Cali, yeah. But yeah, I'm like quickly scrolling through her results. I think she did okay at Indian Wells last year. I want to say. Yeah, she's had like a tournament where she was like, oh, she once dropped a bagel on Monica Niculescu. <laughs> <laughs> on the blue clay of Madrid. Oh boy. So. You know, blue case yeah. Um, oh, she beat Sabine Lasicki in Indian Wells last year. Okay, that was the result, and she beat uh, Mar- Maria Jose Martinez Sanchez in the first round that year, and took Maria Kirilenko to three sets. That's what it was. I think I saw part of that Kirilenko match. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So yeah, I mean, she's she's there. You know, she's <laughs> yeah. You took the word right out of my mouth. I was just like, she's she's there. She's playing tennis. Yeah. She's she was I mean she is and she's ranked pretty high considering how unremarkable we find her. Yeah. Um, she's one spot in the rankings ahead of Skiavoni this week, which once again speaks more about Skiavoni than Lord Dominguez Leno. But still, I mean she's you know she's she's nearly top fifty and she has been top fifty before I think and yeah she uh, she's just there. She's there. She'll be in the Barcelona draw. I think that tournament actually just got taken out, but otherwise she's kind of the person who you expect to be you know. Playing Budapest, playing Palermo, yeah, that kind of thing. So Do, doing the work. You need those players out there. You need those people to fill the draws. For sure. So that's our uninspired take on Laura Zemigazino. Don't Sorry. don't ask her if she won because odds are she lost. <laughs> now Yarko Niemann uh, definitely had some brighter moments than than Laura Zemigazino. Career high of thirteen. Um, won a very long five setter. The Australian Open this year against Tommy Haas in the first round, and I think it's just one of those you know guys who, if he gets put in the right matchup against somebody, he's like, oh, that's a could be a tricky matchup for such and such, and sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, and that's about it. He's a lefty. Yeah. He's been around a while. Um, he's actually done had a pretty good bounce back recently. I feel like he's um, he. I look at his rankings, but he I feel it's been down and then back up again. I think he was outside the top two hundred. I think he was like a comeback player nominee a while ago mm. um maybe not but yeah he was outside the top 200 outside the top sorry outside the top 100 in parts of 2010 i'm guessing with injury but since it's dug back and was gotten to the top 50 for a while last year and even top 40 briefly so you know he's, he's someone who you expect to go out there and put in a you know good honest effort and see what happens and that's all you can really ask i guess it is, yeah. He's uh, kind of one of those perennial finalist type guys of the lower two fifty, you know, kind of tier. He's made ten finals. He's got two titles, so uh, not a great ratio. Yeah, so he's ten and two, I guess, or two and ten in finals. I or two and eight. No, because I don't think the career titles. I'm looking at the WATP page. The career titles aren't included in career finalist. You know what I mean? Okay. So it lists him as a, as a career finalist ten times. 
And then as a separate thing, it says career titles twice. And those tournaments don't overlap. Did you know, my, my one piece of Jarkinium and trivia, is that his wife is like a champion badminton player. I did not and know they this. were like both in the Olympics for different sports. Oh. And they were both like racket sports. Yeah, so that's my, that's a Yarkinium in fact that I have. Oh, nice. That is, that's about all I have, but it's there. Yeah, so his most recent final was, or title was last year in Sydney, and I want to say he beat Novak for that, but I couldn't, no, that can't be right. Who did he beat? He beat like a major name in in that, um, it was like a really good run in Sydney last year. He beat Julian Beneteau in the final, who who hasn't, he owns. Who hasn't beat Julian Beneteau. He's like 7-0 and against Beneteau. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so you're right. Ben, uh, Neiman has been in 12 career finals. And only right. won two of them. Not a great ratio, but once again, better than Beneteau, who is Owen Sapp. Oh, that's what it was. He won Sydney as a qualifier. Okay. I knew there was something significant right, so about he, so that. So he'd been low and come back off, is what I was yeah. basically hinting at. So memories are coming together, yeah. And he's uh, he's played some decent players in these finals for the most part, though. Although he's played a bunch of players with other bad finalist records. Like, he lost to his most two recent finals were against Beneteau and Malfis. And Monfils also has a terrible record in finals, actually. In uh, in finals, Monfils is um, four and thirteen, which is sort of an undersold part of Monfils's lack of you know achieving in his career is that he actually has gotten to the final stage a lot and not converted, um, just because mm-hmm. I feel like he's satisfied with that or something. So yeah, that's that's Yarko. That's Yarko. Not much more to say. Not much more to say. I guess a, a bigger question, I guess we can sort of expand, if you want to snowball off Yarko, is Yarko's really the only player of any relevance, man or woman, right now from Finland? Um, meanwhile, there have been a bunch from Sweden, Sweden. Uh, but not really any from Norway. Now there's one from Denmark. What do you think goes into these like neighboring countries, some being big tennis countries and some not? Like For example, like the Czech Republic and Slovakia have long been big tennis countries since they became independent, I guess, even before that. But, like, Hungary never has. They're right next to each other. Mm-hmm. Why is that? I think because you're inspired by your own. Yeah. It's not like you look over the border and you're like, oh, you know, the, the Czechs are really good. Let's be really good, too. Like, if anything, especially when you have, like, kind of, uh, not contentious, but, like, not the most, like, chummy chummy friendly relationships internationally like you don't want to like take it up and be like oh we're gonna lose to the Czechs all the time now yeah I mean I I think that with Sweden you know being kind of a tennis power as it has it really lucked out obviously with with Bjorn Borg and you know Stefan Edberg and kind of uh, those types of players inspiring you know next generations of the Soderlings and whatnot so you can see that whereas you know I think that's why like people are like really excited about Raonic in Canada because I think the thing it'll open the floodgates, yeah. Right, right. It's like here's a guy who like can inspire people to pick up a racket and play, and that's really what you need. And doesn't always work out that way in actuality, but it's it doesn't. It, it does, you know. That's but you need you need the starter there for the most part. You have to one of the Billie Jean King catchphrases, you know, you got to see it to be it or something. So yeah. with like Lee Na, I think it's a big example of this. People are really excited yes. that Lee Na's success will inspire this new wave of Chinese tennis players who never would have taken up the game. If she hadn't played. And that might not come to the pro circuit for another 10 years. But if it does, that'll be the spark. Because a lot of times like that will spark not just p- players picking up the, the sport, but also 
coaches being, you know, wanting to like come to that country to coach players leaving the country to go get, you know, kind of more traditional coaching and then taking that information back to, to their native lands. Um, you know, all these sorts of things are what go into kind of establishing a, t- a tennis tradition. So yeah, it's good. Definitely. So we'll see if Yarko, Yarko brings any other Finnish talent behind him. But yeah, the well, well can dry up right now. There's nobody Swedish. At all behind Soderling. Yeah. Soderling, I mean, their Davis Cup team is a bunch of people outside the top 600, and they've yeah. managed to hang around a, a relatively high group for how bad they are. So, or for yeah. how depleted they are, anyway. So, so we'll see. That was number 54. wasn't wasn't the best number ever, but also, sorry, also it's not our the, fault. So we at least knew who those people were. Yeah, that's yeah. true. So let's count our blessings. So now it's time for our rant corner segment of the show, where each of us will get something off of our chest, I guess, it's fair to say, Courtney? Very fair, Ben. Very fair. So mine is fairly simple, but it's something that I think a lot of people don't realize. We mentioned it before on this show, and it just has to do with headlines, which are a big part of our business as writers. Back when we both each had our own sites or much smaller you know, outlets we wrote for that were independent and self-run, we all wrote our own headlines, and they could be you know, clever or not clever or interesting or not interesting as we chose. But now, for the most part, and I think that's something people don't realize, is that we don't write our own headlines almost ever. Maybe if you send in a piece, you can put a headline on it, but odds are it's going to get changed. Um, more than any other part of your piece, the headline will get changed. And it can really change the, the tone of a piece. And I think that when we talked about the Rick Marino stuff, uh, we talked about the Yahoo article, which was not exclusively talking about cyberbullying, forcing react directly, but the headline gets sensationalized into that. And it can happen with other stuff. I mean, the, even the he- he- headline from my article on Rebecca was player was like was really generic. It was like player o- player overcomes hi- hiatus and bullying. I just thought it was kind of funny they chose the word player instead of you know Marino. Just, just <laughs> player, player to be named later. Player. Um, but yeah, but that was more anything. I guess it was so short just for how much space there was on the page. It's a big part of that. But also, I'm not entirely sure if I was writing it myself, I would have chosen the word overcomes in the article mm. because. I felt like that was a little bit more making it sound like a done deal than I thought it was. I thought it was still the cyberbullying and the online stuff was still sort of an ongoing issue for her. And Overcomes made it sound a little bit more conquering than maybe I thought it mm-hmm. should have been. But that's but I usually don't have any major problems with that. And usually when they are, the New York Times, um, just the decorum of the of the medium, um, usually they get stuff right. And usually they try to desensationalize stuff from what I put it or make it, I put some somewhat clever headline they almost always uncleverize it, um, which is fine. So, which is know. weird because the New York Straight Sets Twitter always has like these headlines. These, oh, they the way use they the tweet. Reuters twed- headlines is what it is. Oh, So, okay. yeah, the New York Straight Sets headlines. It'll be like Jack socks it to oh, James was, Bl- I'm like, that was really? Awful. That was awful. No, really? So the NYT Straight Sets Twitter I think is really good because it has a raw feed of the ATP and Reuters feeds. It'll go in there. So any breaking news in tennis, you'll get it from that Twitter no matter what. If it's okay. committed by AP Reuters. So it's a very good catch-all for that. But they also have these ridiculous... Reuters goes the opposite end of the spectrum, more recent than usual. Um, and they have these headlines like, tight-shirted Andy Murray prevails in Australia. It's like, do we... Really- so British. It's so British. Really need to hear about his shirt. And just hear like this like keyboard lustiness from him, over him. In our headlines, no, we, we don't need this. So that, that part has gotten annoying. But I, I know that you talked about it too, Courtney, just like having the ability to not write your own headlines and not keep sort of the tone. Because the headline can't really set the tone for how people interpret a piece. 
Um, and sometimes they don't get far past the headlines. So headlines are important. And not having control of it or not having a say in it can be challenging or frustrating. 100% agree. Yeah. I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've received tons of like just angry, bitter mail from people uh, via email or on comments or on Twitter who clearly are reacting just to the headline. Like they actually didn't read what I wrote, you know, on a certain topic or something like that. And I'm like, yeah. I mean, like at this point, I kind of just don't take headlines seriously um, because that's the business aspect of it more than the content aspect, I, I suppose. Yeah. But, um, you know, like they have to get clicks. And I guess if those headlines get people to click on stuff, then whatever. But it's just not it, I just kind of ignore it all now because <laughs> yeah, it used to be so infuriating. It did. And so that's just that's just sort of a more of a caveat emptor for people than anything, I guess. Just, you know, read past the headlines. Don't think that the writer picked the headline. And if you can, get a sense of what the story's actually about in the headline, but then sort of throw it away once you start reading the first paragraph. It'll give you a much better sense of stuff. So that is my rant for this week, Courtney. How about you? I have a non-tennis rant. Okay. It's the Academy Awards this weekend. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Zero Dark Thirty was hosed. It was hosed badly. It was like I can't even like I can't even deal with like reading through the Academy Award nominations without getting pissed off that zero that Catherine Bigelow was not nominated for Best Director, you know. And now everybody's backing. All of a sudden, Argo has all this like steam, and I'm like, Argo isn't even the better the best movie that tried to do that, which was basically you know a true life retelling uh, of a historical event that has to do with like CIA espionage and like stuff like that. Zero Dark Thirty was better, and it just is really disappointing because it's it's. It's an, another instance where, and obviously this is the Academy Awards, and it happens all the time. It's happened, I don't know, it, I mean, the day that I kind of, like, stopped taking the Academy Awards seriously was in 1995 when Pulp Fiction was beat out by, like, I think Forrest Gump or something. And that's when I was like, okay, whatever. This I is, know you don't like Forrest Gump. I hate Forrest Gump. But I was just, at that moment, I was just like, this awards show sucks. It's just, it's not accurate. And it is so uh, tied to kind of hype without substance in other words if people wanted the biggest knock against zero dark 30 before it came out before anybody saw it mind you was the issue of torture and how the movie depicted torture torture that happened like it happened like sorry america it happened it happened in abu Ghraib. like we all know this gitmo it happened everywhere it's a part of the story anyway people were like oh it glorifies torture because torture's in the movie which doesn't make sense because it's supposed to be a true retelling of. I don't think I don't think you're glorifying something just by putting it in a movie. Oh. Right, exactly. I mean, like, what more do you want? Like, Jessica Chastain gets nauseous when she sees it. She's uncomfortable, but at the end of the day, like, she's a CIA agent, and this is this was the world in which they lived in, and it was approved by, you know, the White House and everything like that. So they went through with it, anyways. So the movie got this got knocked horribly about this whole torture issue. And as Hollywood is super, you know, liberal and like whatever, I feel like a bunch of people made up their minds about this movie before they watched it. And we're just like, okay, well that movie is like Republican propaganda. Like it's supposed to be like, yay, we killed Osama. And that's like, so not what the movie is. Like anybody who has seen it, who has a brain can understand that this is not glorifying anything. It, it was just like brutally truthful and honest. Like, you know how it happened and if anything it my takeaway from the movie at the end was and so and what was it all for like you know and and um which i won't give away kind of like kind of why that is my takeaway but 
Yes. So whatever, like the Academy Awards don't matter. Like it's just so stupid. I'm exhausted even talking about it. <laughs> I'm like, how do you give Argo best picture, but then not nominate Affleck for best director? It doesn't even make sense. Like you guys are all just old fuddy duddies who don't know shit. And like, whatever, you're also the Academy that thought Crash was a better movie than Brokeback Mountain. So why should we take you seriously? I feel like that happens with award shows of all all the major award shows. I mean, not that I pay any attention to, I guess, the Tonys, which is the third one, mm-hmm. a fourth one. But uh, for the Grammys, which I do sort of follow more, you'll have these results, like, last two years ago, I guess it was, when Arcade Fire won Best Album. You're like, <laughs> yeah, okay. That's pretty you're funny. Like, that was like, oh, this actually makes sense. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. The year before, it had been, like, Taylor Swift or something. Right, but it was so Taylor farcical you know, that it was confident. like, oh, my God. Yeah. But then when it, you do have these moments where you're like, oh, okay, maybe they're getting their act together. And then things happen. And you're just like, yeah, no. And then it goes back to like rewarding, I don't know, Rihanna for things and nominating Chris Brown for things and LMFAO. Aren't LMFAO like a Grammy nominated, if not award winning artist? Yeah. Now, the, yeah. the Grammys tend to trend a lot towards mainstream stuff more which than the Oscars. Which doesn't make sense because like you have the Billboard Awards, which are basically a commercial award. Yeah. You have like the American Music Awards. You have like all these awards that basically reward the black eyed peasiness of music. Yeah. Like, why can't we just have like one set of awards that's like tries to actually be legit and like not just, you know, rewarding people because if you give them a Grammy, they'll show up and perform at your Grammys and your like production will be awesome and people will watch and you'll therefore have a job. Like, that's basically how it all happens, and it's dumb. And I just the, the Brit Awards were this week, and I'm not. I think they're just for British people. Mm-hmm. And apparently, from what I heard, they invented a new category called the Worldwide Success Category, just so one person <laughs> win an award. And because um, but because they knew that One Direction was never winning in a legit category, they weren't. They weren't going to give them that, but they were willing to but invent they a Worldwide one Direction success. there. Yeah. They wanted an excuse to get, you know, a One Direction at the awards or at least to mention One Direction so that they can get, like, hits and Twitter retweets and, like, what People watching because there's a lot of One Direction. Yeah, it's so... I can't... Is there just no authenticity anymore? Can people just not be, like... I don't know. It's I, like seriously. I'm like exhausted even thinking about it. Like, steroids. Like, we need like a, we need like a Senate tribunal on award show. It's just like there's, nothing matters anymore. It's all just like bombast and idiocy, and there's no like truth or purity to anything that is considered that. Then people try to consider themselves artists. Like it's supposed to be best new artist. Bullshit! You ain't no artist. You auto tune. <laughs> like yeah. you're not an artist. You know? Like ugh, I cannot. I'm pretty sure Bieber was nominated for best new artist. I'm sure he was there. Yeah. I mean, the year Adele won everything, that was pretty good. I mean, there, no, there have been people who have done who've done good work who've gotten rewarded for at the Grammys. Maybe more than other awards too. Or I don't know. Oh, I don't know about that. But like Lauren Hill, she cleaned up one year, and that was deserved. <laughs> Adele did well. Alanis. Alanis did well. Yeah. But then but they also... go think like peas and. Goat yees. I don't know all this goat stuff. Goat is that... okay. I don't think goat is not. Goye is not. Goye is not also not like the commercial sellout version of that. Giving award to Goye is not giving award to Justin Bieber. That's fair. I give you that. I give you that. So that's okay. just music you disagree with, which is which is different. Very true. So, but we we agree. This has been lovely to talk to you folks again, and we'll do it again soon. Um, maybe from Indian Wells next episode. Probably not yet, but soon. Actually, yeah, I think our next episode might be from Indian Wells. So. 
we'll see you all there. Pack your sunscreen, Courtney. It gets pretty sunny out there. It does. I'm not the one that burns easily, Ben. No, you're not. I'm mostly telling it's myself, but I thought I'd project a little bit onto somebody else. You could try. Never works. Never does I've work. Got... My skin is used to the sun. I'm a Cali kid. I'm, I'm, I'm just not. I'm also just, I would be pale and pasty even if I did grow up in California, too. That's probably true. Later, guys. Bye. Let me send you this One Direction cover. Oh, why do you hate it, me? It's it's incredible. Why do you hate me?